The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. through the Sermon on the Mount, which describes the life of real, born-again Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus opens this sermon describing the character of his disciples in the Beatitudes and the blessings they receive. And having described the influence of his disciples as salt and light in the world, Jesus now turns to describe the righteousness of his disciples. If you remember, righteousness, that word, at its most basic means rightness, things as they are supposed to be, as intended by God. The righteousness of Jesus' followers, as described in this context of the Sermon on the Mount, is not simply about a new legal status that Christians obtain with God, meaning that they're no longer regarded as condemned sinners, but as sons and daughters of God, justified and adopted. That is certainly true. But Jesus is also describing how this new status, righteousness before God, having a right relationship with God, how that corrects a disciple's thinking and living, making that right too. And in verses 17 and 18, as we looked at last week, Jesus sets our thinking straight. Jesus corrects the misunderstanding many people had about his relationship with the Old Testament. He had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but actually to fulfill them. In verses 19 and 20 this week, Jesus clarifies not just how to think rightly about him, but how to live rightly in light of the knowledge we have about him. So last week, we looked at right thinking. This week, right living. And this section of the sermon is a pivot point between the Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon. And we'll see the general principles that Jesus uses to spell out in detail what right thinking and what right living looks like in a multitude of areas in life. Whether it's sex, marriage and divorce, giving, praying, fasting. So we're going to be picking up where we left off. Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. And please follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the pew for you, and you can turn to, I think it's page 810, and follow along. Let me pray. God, thanks for this time to be together and to read your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to think rightly about Jesus, to understand him for who he is. And as we think rightly about him, Help us to live rightly. Help us to understand how grace and obedience fit together. Open our eyes and change our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Picking up in the middle of Jesus' sermon, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Three points will guide us through this text. They are, the fact of the matter is that Jesus shows special honor to the obedient. Now, there's a common objection to that fact, which is the question, well, what of grace then? And so we'll talk about the answer, the reason Jesus gives for showing greater honor to those who obey. So the fact of the matter is, Jesus gives greatest honor to those who obey. Look at it, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus sets two things in contrast in this verse, and one thing is held in common. First, there's a contrast of behavior. Those who relax the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same are contrasted with those who obey and teach even the least of the commandments. Second, there's a contrast of reputation. Those called least in the kingdom of heaven are contrasted with those called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, despite these two contrasts, there's one thing in common. The greatest and the least referred to in verse 19 are both in the kingdom of heaven, despite the differences of behavior and reputation. So therefore, verse 19 is not a comparison between Christians and non-Christians, but between Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. So even with an equality of status as sons and daughters of the king, there remains an order of reputation. Some will be called great and others the least. So what does this mean? Jesus gives special honor to those who live righteously, who are serious about obeying all of God's laws, even the seemingly insignificant ones. C.H. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said it this way, The peerage of Christ's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. So there you have it. That's the fact of the matter. Jesus orders his people according to their obedience. Those who strive to obey God in every way are given special honor. Now, there's a common objection to this, which is, well, what then of grace How can this be? This sounds like you're saying that one has to earn God's favor. But grace means that you receive favor undeservedly, or maybe even ill-deservedly. So how can Spurgeon, of all people, the prince of preachers of grace, say such things? So if you're a believer here this morning, you may be asking, I thought the ground at the cross was level. And if all sinners are saved by grace alone and God is no respecter of persons, then what do I do with this verse that clearly teaches some will be greater than others in God's kingdom? Now, you may be tempted, like I have been, to gloss over it. Unfortunately, then you're asked to preach on it. And you can't. Like so many, you may be tempted to only pay attention to scriptures you can easily understand. But let me appeal to you. Don't let 
verses like this discourage you or confuse you. Instead, get curious about them. Seek to understand the harder things. God does not contradict himself. Maybe he has something more that he'd like to reveal to you. Now, while Christians may be asking, how can this be? If you're a critic or a skeptic of the Bible here this morning, you may be saying to yourself, well, I know exactly how this can be. The Bible is full of contradictions. But let's not dismiss Jesus so easily and believe that the greatest teacher of all time, and even his skeptics believe that, that this greatest teacher of all time would contradict himself within a few sentences. We should not be surprised that as we grow to understand Jesus better, our elementary understanding of him will be challenged. Initial confusion is simply what happens whenever we transition from an elementary understanding of any topic to a mature understanding of that topic. In first grade, I learned that math dealt with numbers and English dealt with letters So you can imagine my confusion when I looked over the shoulder of my older brother who was in seventh grade and was working on his algebra homework at the dining room table. He was writing all kinds of letters in his math problem. I felt so betrayed. How else had my first grade teacher lied to me? But the truth is, math is more than numbers. And likewise, grace is more than undeserved favor. And lest you fail to understand the more advanced principles of God's grace and choose to remain blind to all its beauty and power, I encourage you to think again and reconsider that grace is more, not less. See, real grace is more than receiving God's undeserved favor. It's being transformed by God's undeserved favor. And that fact far from undermining grace, that fact of obedience is actually an evidence of grace. It proves the transforming power and extent of grace because real grace is transforming and it necessarily, necessarily leads to loving obedience that will result in ever-increasing glory and joy with God for you and for other people. On Sunday evening, it was my joy to attend the David Kim concert here at Westminster. David is a master musician. He's the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Listening to David Kim play the violin was a transforming experience for me, and I know it was for many of you. Such beauty, such excellence. It moved me deeply. I think it moved all of us. As I listened to David Kim play, I thought about this passage. In the master's hands, any instrument, even a common one, is made glorious, isn't it? Had Dr. Rogers called David Kiefer instead of David Kim to the platform to play the violin, it would have been an altogether different concert experience. Not remarkable in the least, But that violin in the master's hand is necessarily remarkable and glorious because being in the master's hand changes everything. And verse 19 and 20 describes 
how Jesus works in the lives of his people so that they, too, resonate with more and more of his glory and his beauty. Grace means surrendering your life fully to the master's hands and living rightly, righteously. It means being tuned or being in tune with the master's world, not loosening any of the laws, demands, no matter how small, but having your heartstrings tuned to God's will, to his law, no matter how seemingly insignificant that law is. It means joyfully embracing the master's boundaries, not exposing ourselves to damaging elements and hot temperatures. Those defile a violin as much as they defile a Christian. It's not neglecting to take care of yourself as the master directs. And it means yielding to the master's touch, no matter how demanding that touch is, such that our lives begin to play with ageless beauty and supreme glory. So yes, the fact is God gives greater honor to those who fully obey his will. He calls them the greatest in his kingdom. And the common objection does not stand because grace is more than just undeserved favor. Grace is transformed by undeserved favor. And that leads to our last point. The reason Jesus gives for honoring those who obey all of his laws as the righteous king, his reasons fully align with what we talked about last week, that he has come to fulfill all righteousness, not abolish the law. And Jesus honors obedience for at least two reasons that we see in this text. First, just to reinforce his unwavering vision to bring all of his people, each and every one of you and me, to perfect glory. And the second reason is to motivate his people to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's break down these two reasons. First, he rewards those who obey with special honor to reinforce his unwavering vision to bring all of his people to perfect glory. When it comes to righteousness, there will be no room for compromise in the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom is a kingdom of glory where each and every person is perfected in righteousness. That means made right in every way imaginable, physically, emotionally, mentally, socially. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Greek expression translated as exceed is emphatic. In other words, your righteousness must greatly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees just to get past the front door of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this wouldn't be all that challenging if the Pharisees were a bunch of average Joes and plain Janes. But in fact, they were famous for their righteousness. John Stott writes, Was not obedience to God's law the master passion of their lives? Did they not calculate that the law contains 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions? And did they not aspire to keep every last one? How then can Christian righteousness 
actually exceed Pharisaic righteousness? That's a very good question. Does this mean that if Pharisees kept 248 commandments, that Christians must keep 500? That if Pharisees are prohibited from 365 things, that that Christians must develop more and more thousands of prohibitions? No, the righteousness that far surpasses that of Pharisees is not one of degree, but one of kind. It is a depth of morality that is required. See, the Pharisees, they were content with obedience that was external, behavioral, formal, legal. It focused on rigid conformity to the letter of the law. But the problem is, and you and I both know this, you can keep the letter of the law and completely miss the heart of the law. And we all know what this looks like. When someone comes into their life, into our life, and they do all the right things, but it it lacks love. And we feel used. See, the righteousness of the Pharisees did not penetrate the heart nor address the motives or captivations or fears and worries. But see, the righteousness that pleases God does because it's an inward righteousness of mind and heart. And no one is going to get past the front door of heaven until there is a full and complete inward change of heart. For the Lord looks at the heart Right living is not merely external. Right living is sensitive to the motives that we have for obedience and for relationship and for worship. See, the right externals must be driven by the right internals. And so that creates an even bigger dilemma. See, if the standard is internal and external righteousness, and God will not lower that standard at all, how then... Can any of us ever enter the kingdom of heaven? And the answer to that question gets to the very heart of Christian hope. See, we can enter only by trusting Jesus Christ, the only one to have met God's righteous standard. He lived the life that you and I know we should live, but have failed to live, and he did it in order to save us from the life we have lived. And when a Christian trusts in Jesus Christ, he is trusting Jesus from start to finish. First, he's trusting Jesus to be righteousness for him. But second, he's trusting Jesus to fulfill righteousness in him. Grace is not just the first. It's both. Now, I can hardly imagine it. See, it, it's so common for us to think that if we're ever going to be accepted by God to get into his kingdom, he's going to have to lower the standard. You know what I mean? Especially for some of you. But God says he will never lower the standards of the kingdom. Instead, he will make us, sinners though we are, rise to the standard. He will make us fit for the kingdom. And he does this first by removing all of our sin and absorbing it into himself and paying sin's penalty on the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. And he overcomes sin's power at the resurrection. Now, once our unrighteousness is removed and once the penalty for it is paid for, then second, 
He invests himself into us by his righteous spirit, ensuring that the work of grace that he started will be completed for the very spirit of Christ that lived perfectly righteous now dwells in his people. Wow. And that spirit roots out all remaining unrighteousness, anything that isn't yet perfected as God intends. And the process continues day by day by day until one day in glory he completes the job and completes our salvation. The righteousness of the Pharisees was skin deep, scratch below the surface, and it's nothing but hypocrisy like that produced by every other human religious system. But the gospel is totally different. It is truly good news, for in it, there's a righteousness that is deep, real, authentic, lasting, true, transforming. It changes the very heart of man, healing him from the inside out. See, God... Jesus in this passage, he's he's bending over backwards, bending over backwards to tell us why he honors those who obey him. There's two reasons. First, he does it to create a hunger and thirst for righteousness among his people. And to do this, you know, Jesus honors his people according to their obedience because relational influence, it's inescapable. And glorious righteousness is inspiring. So he honors people who obey because that's the way he blesses and trains and redeems his people, the community of his people. How so? Well, first of all, relational influence, it's inescapable. Notice Jesus says, whoever relaxes and teaches others, and then he says, whoever does the law and teaches others. Notice Jesus links what a person does And what a person teaches. And whether he relaxes God's law or obeys it, Jesus links behavior and teaching. Why? Jesus understood that we're made in God's image. God is triune. He's three persons in one. God is a community, and being made in his image means we are made in community. We are made as social beings. No one lives as an island to himself. Now, we may think that we can simply mind our own business. But the fact is, we can't help but influence others, nor have them influence us, because we are by nature social beings. We are constantly impressing our convictions, righteous or not, upon others, and even when we don't recognize it. For example, even on the rare occasion that a lazy person keeps their opinion to themselves about how everyone else is so uptight all the time. Nonetheless, they cannot help but impact others by their laziness. Their behavior defiles the naive and the innocent. Their irresponsibility wounds those who depend on them. Their wasted talents grieve those who love them. On the flip side, workaholics continually impress on everyone around them just how ridiculous it is when other people don't work as late as they do into the night or fail to return to the office on weekends. See, Jesus, he linked behavior to teaching because humans are by nature social beings. We teach others our convictions, whether those are loose convictions or tight convictions, 
Sometimes we do that actively in words, but most often indirectly by our actions and maybe simply by our body language with our deep sighs, our rolling eyes, or our approving smiles. So to motivate his people to hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus honors his people according to their obedience because relational influence is inescapable. But second, righteousness is inspiring. Notice verse 19, the second half. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus honors those who obey even the least of the the laws, the commandments, by calling them great. These are the Olympians of the faith. Like millions of Americans, our family has huddled around their television to see the Olympic Games, more so during the summer Olympic Games than the winter Olympic Games, because one of our kids really enjoys gymnastics. See, Olympic athletes are simply inspiring, aren't they? Glorious to behold, compelling us to be like them. I have to admit that during the Olympic Games, my motivation to get back in shape has come back. And I have a video of one of my kids sitting in front of the TV, literally captivated by Team USA, her team, braiding her hair like the gymnasts braid their hair. She had red, white, and blue leotard She had a red, white, and blue leotard on to prove that this was her team. And during the commercial breaks, she would roll around just like they did on the mat. Except she would do it on the living room floor. And she would flip upside down during the commercial breaks and be watching the TV in a headstand position. See, she was captivated. She wanted to be like those Olympians. And in the same way, Christians, obedient ones... They're simply inspiring. They're glorious to behold, compelling us to be godly like them. And like we do with the Olympians, Jesus holds great Christians up for us to respect and emulate. Now the difference is, I do not have the genetics of a gymnast. So there's little hope for me ever making the Olympics in that way. But anyone who is in Christ has the DNA of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ himself imprinted on you. So you have innate potential. How does this all apply? Honor and esteem the godly among you. Jesus does. Show me a man or a woman who has fire in his belly for God and for righteousness, and I will show you a man or a woman who has been blessed with an Olympic-like hero of the faith, someone who has come alongside them and shown them the glory of Christ and not settled for second best the comforts of the world, the seductions of the flesh. flesh. Maybe it was a parent or a coach or a young life leader or a pastor or a sibling, but God creates hunger and thirst for righteousness by esteeming the godly who walk among us, who simply refuse to dismiss any of God's laws no matter how insignificant. And the opposite can also be said. It's not uncommon for those who grow up in churches where there wasn't the godly that were honored. It wasn't them who were placed in positions of leadership, but for some reason or other, it was the wealthy or the connected or the humorous or the beautiful. And, and you can see it in the next generation because they have little fire in their belly for the kingdom of heaven. 
and they're often filled with lots of cynicism. But obedient Christians are inspiring. They're glorious to behold. And notice he's focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. It's not so much the gifts of the Spirit, even though those are beneficial, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that truly inspires. When you have a a Christian sold out for Christ, you begin to see the impossible made possible. Their love for others can heal the anger of even the most embittered. You ever seen that? Their faith in God and their patience in suffering can cause even the most despairing to have hope in their own suffering. Their hope in Christ can overwhelm even the resistance of the strongest cynic. See, I am so thankful that God has placed dozens of such men and women in my life. Some I've had the privilege to know personally, Others I've had to read about in biographies, people like the late Billy Graham, who passed away this week into glory, Jack Miller, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Richard Wormbrandt, who founded Voice of the Martyrs, that we are, we are supporting that ministry. See, like Olympians, though, their righteous glory did not come easy for any of these men and women of faith, any of these Olympians. It came only through tremendous sacrifice. Not only did Jesus sacrifice everything so that they could be reckoned righteous and have that inward potential of excellence, that DNA of the Spirit implanted upon them, but they had to sacrifice daily by taking up their cross, dying to sin so that they might live to righteousness. And like Olympians, they obtained greater glory because they refused to relax even on the little things. They're disciplined through and through striving day in and day out. They refuse to relax even the least commandment of God. They will not loosen any law's hold on their conscience, nor loosens its authority in their life. And the end is something wondrous to behold, a glory and honor that is breathtaking, that inspires us to follow their example See, Jesus passes out these crowns of glory to those who are obedient to him because he's trying to inspire us. And he's also not afraid to share his glory. See, some of you might be thinking, well, it's dangerous to celebrate Christians that are obedient. Jesus does. Well, but if they do it, they'll make it all about them. Not Olympians of the faith. Because Olympians of the faith realized the only reason they got there was by the grace of God from start to finish. And that's why in Revelation 4, even though they are given great crowns of honor and righteousness and they are esteemed highly, what do the most esteemed do? It says the elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive all glory and honor and power. May God so bless this community, this church, that he raises up Olympians of the faith to inspire us to greater obedience. And may you, like my little girl, inspire to be like them, striving hard after Christ so you too can be used by God 
like a violin in a master's hand, making music that is ageless in its beauty and its glory. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are not a God who saves us halfway. You don't offer a grace that simply is undeserved, but that undeserved grace is so powerful that it transforms us. God, teach us to tune our hearts to you. Let us surrender our lives in every way to the Master. Whatever area we're withholding, whatever way we're refusing to let you tune us, God, help us to repent. Because you are worthy of all glory. You are the Master. And we want to be like you. For in that is true freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.